Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high, across, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters, also known as the Ant Hill. Today uh, is a Tuesday. It's Tuesday, May 31st, 2011. But we're doing the Monday-style show because I did not do a broadcast yesterday. I didn't take the day off. I'm actually doing two to three shows a day. Uh, actually, it was in Sunday, did a show. This one, uh, Monday, did a show. It'll be tomorrow's. And I'm getting a lot of shows done because I'm going to go on vacation in June from like the 10th to the 23rd. But you guys should maybe maybe miss one or two shows at most, maybe none while I'm gone. And guess what? I'm going to do a sale while I'm gone. There's going to be a rifle being given away where I'm gone. And you're going to need a show every day while I'm gone. Isn't that awesome? Uh, I guess that's the things you do when you love your audience. You make sure that even when you're gone, they still get to communicate with you. And I'll be communicating with Facebook, Twitter, all that type of stuff while I'm down there. Fishing for snook and uh, pompano and permit and all other kinds of great fish on the beach. And spending some time with my wonderful wife and uh, de-stressing from this very stressful year with the move and all. So I don't find like a large cliff and, cliff and jump off it because that would be bad for the show, I think. And I would break the first rule of survival. Wake up tomorrow alive. All right. Um, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Harvest Eating. That is the awesome, and I mean the absolutely freaking awesome, Keith Snow. Keith will be with us on the 9th. That will be actually the day before my vacation begins, but I've already interviewed him uh, earlier this week, and he will be the kickoff of a major uh, slew of interviews that will be airing while I'm gone. Uh, he was awesome on the interview. I'm going to warn you right now, when you know Keith Snow is coming on the show, Eat something before you listen to the show. The guy is a genius. You give him very basic peasant ingredients, stuff off our shelves uh, from our storage, and he tells you how to do awesome things within our interviews. He'll also tell you how to cook seasonally and cook locally. Check out HarvestEating.com. Go through the banner on the website. Remember, he gives great discounts to TSP members, and he, he really works hard in his community to help you do a really good job of creating great things to eat. So check out HarvestEating.com and learn how to take those storables and make them into great dishes and eat what you store, store what you eat now, not rely on them as bland crap if the shit hits the fan. Next up today, emergency essentials. We do need those long-term storables. And I don't know a better place to find great selection on them, great service on them, than emergency essentials. They're an awesome supplier. Lots of great information, lots of great other emergency supplies, but where they really hit a home run is long-term storables. Get by their website, beprepared.com. Request their catalog, get on their mailing list. Those are important things to stay in touch with them and see what you can, you know, see when they have sales and specials and things like that because some are awesome. Uh, again, great information on their website, beprepared.com. And if you're looking to really stock up on long-term storables, it's definitely one of the places you're going to want to check you know, along with some of our other great sponsors. Next up today, I want to remind you guys about our forum. Our forum is awesome. And I really hope that you guys will get involved with the forum, and I hope those that do, if there's maybe a rule or two you don't agree with as you very first start out posting to the forum, give us some time. We've been running the forum now for about two and a half years, 
And uh, we've had to make some tough decisions on how we set rules and how we set guidelines and things like that. But we've done it for the good of the community as a whole, and it's worked out very well. And people that stick around generally start to see why we do certain things. And certain things become open and available to you as you make more posts. You might want to wonder, where's a board about this or where's a board about that? Certain subjects are kind of, well, they're hot-button issues, some, some politics things and stuff like that. We have a post-count requirement. It might seem a little bit totalitarian. It's really not. By the time you get to know the other people, you're less likely to start insulting them. And they're less likely to start insulting you. And that's why we do that. A great forum, great information. And now there's an opportunity on the forum for everybody. Save Castle, one of our other sponsors, is doing a, a project called the Freedom Awards for 2011. They're looking for great uh, nonfiction articles on preparedness and survival. You can submit them to our forum. Uh, there's a link on the, I'll put a link in today's show notes so you can get more information about this. There's a board on our forum just for the submission of your articles. If we select your article, you can win huge prizes. I'll leave it at that. You need to go look it up yourself to see what they are. But if you can write a good nonfiction article, if you're a blogger, if you're anybody, you need to submit to this. One of the prizes is a teardrop tra trailer valued at almost $7,000. That's just one prize. All right, so check that one out. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You support the show at 20 cents an episode. You get discounts to over 25 vendors like the two great ones I just brought on, Orion Concepts with uh, custom Kydex holsters and Lenwood Leather with custom leather holsters, custom leather belts, custom leather, anything you can think of. If you can think of it and you want it, they'll make it for you. Great discounts on those two. Those are just the two latest vendors I brought into uh, the Member Support Brigade. Remember, if you are military prior service or active duty, I don't care if you're retired I don't care if you just served three years and they were done. If you've ever served in the United States Armed Forces in any capacity, reserves and guard included, email me before you join. I have a special discount for military members. When you do, tell me what branch you were in, when you served, or where you're currently serving, what your job is, stuff like that. Give me a little bit of information. That way I can kind of vet and make sure that you really are a vet. On that note, before we get into today's stuff, yesterday was Memorial Day. And I've had a lot of people emailing me and saying, thank you for your service. And, and I appreciate that. Thank you very much for doing so. But I want to remind you what Memorial Day is really about. It's not just that it's, it's not just about eating hot dogs and drinking beer and camping and having a long weekend and, and about our troops. It's actually, um, much more somber than that. Veterans Day is the day that you turn, and I think every day is the day that you turn to veterans and say thank you for your service, especially the guys over there getting their asses shot at for us right now. Whether And that's whether you believe that they should be there or not. They're still doing it. They're still risking their ass. There is no draft today. They have volunteered to do it on your behalf. You don't have to agree with them being there to agree with the fact that they are doing everything they can to help people like you have a better life. And every day is a day to thank vets. But Memorial Day is more somber than something like Veterans Day, which is for all veterans, living, uh, those who have gone on, those who died in battle, those who came home, those who came home, home whole, and those who came home not quite whole. Memorial Day is about the ones that never came home, or when they did come home, they came home in a flag-draped casket. Some of them are buried on foreign shores. Uh, so even though we've passed Memorial Day, and it was yesterday, it doesn't matter. If you didn't take the time yesterday to kind of think about that, do so today. Think about the sacrifices that have been made. Realize how precious the liberty of this nation is. And realize that it's up to us to keep it. The veteran is the one that secures liberty. We are the ones that must preserve it. 
Uh, now with that thought, let's go ahead and take your uh, first email to me today. Remember, if you would like to uh, submit email for a show like this, you send that to uh, jack at the survivalpodcast.com with question for Jack, article for Jack, comment for Jack, video for Jack, what have you, in the subject line. That way I'll filter it properly and maybe we'll get you on. I get about 200 plus emails a day submitted like this, so I can't get them all on. I try to bring a good variety and good selection on uh, on a uh, ongoing basis. So I'll do my best. Remember the Think Line, 866-65-THINK. That's 866-65-THINK. It's also another way, especially with questions, it's probably a more likely thing that you'll get your question answered if you use that. It might be three weeks out, but it will happen sooner or later. Uh, let's go ahead and take that first email. Our first uh, thing comes to us today from uh, Diane. Diane, actually it's from Rob, I guess Diane must be his wife, and they use the same email address. But Rob says, Jack, article on growing a, a growing number of renters on Yahoo Finance. This is from Rob in Michigan. And uh, let me read a little bit of it to you. This is from the AP, put out on Yahoo Finance. Headline, Troubled Home Market Creates a Generation of went Renters. Washington AP, a growing number of Americans can't afford a home and don't want to own one. That's a trend spawning a generation of renters and a rise in apartment construction. Many of the new renters are former owners who lost homes due to foreclosure or bankruptcy. For others who could afford one, a home now feels too costly, too risky, or unlikely to appreciate enough to make it, appreciate enough to make it a worthwhile investment. The proportion of U.S. households that own homes is at the lowest point since 1998. That's when this whole mess really started to get ramped up, though, isn't it, folks? Um, when the housing bubble burst four years ago, 31.6% of households were renters. Now it's 33.6% and rising. Since the housing meltdown, nearly 3 million households have become renters, and at least 3 million more are expected by 2015. According to the census data analyzed by Harvard's Joint Center for Housing Studies and the Associated Press, all told, nearly 38 million households are renters. And uh, I can read the rest of the article, but I'll leave it to you because I have an alternate thought on this. It's, it's the housing market. See? See? It's the housing market crashing. That's why everybody's renting. Well, there's, there's, there's some truth to that. But I've actually talked to a lot of people that are renting right now. Do you know why they told me they're renting? It's not because they can't get a loan. Uh, people that, you know, should be able to get a loan can get a loan. Right now, people that shouldn't be able to get a loan can still get a loan. Uh, I talked to a listener yesterday that lives locally that I went and visited him and his wonderful family. And, uh, he was in the construction business for a while and he's not anymore directly, but, um, not in the, the residential construction business anymore anyway. But he told me that he knows people that are still, you know, getting loans that are, you know, really going to the limit, the max of what they're able to borrow. So, It's not really as bad as we've been told, and you know, interest rates are at the lowest rate of all time, and they've stuffed the money with banks. Hmm. But the but the housing market is still in decline, not just the new starts, but you know, the existing structure market. So what what's going on there? Well, there's a lot of things going on there, but you want me to tell you one of the things that just will never get said in the media because the media is in bed with government. It's property taxes. Let me say it again: property taxes. Now. The capitalist out there is saying, Jack, you're missing the point. If the property taxes are high, they're high for the owner of the property, the landlord, and then he's renting to the tenant. Uh, so the, the, the property tax is getting passed on. You are correct, but you are missing a big deal here. Um, 
when you own property for a very long period of time, there's a certain mitigation to the rise in property taxes. There's a lot of properties out there that despite the fact that the government's going in and appraising them at higher rates and raising your taxes, people that have held property for 20 years or more often have property that is being taxed at an appraised rate that is far below its current market value even during a recession. And if that landlord has also been making large-scale payments on the property and bought it a long time ago and has allowed the appreciation to come up but has not refinanced the property and owes very little on the property against its actual value, the landlord is going to rent to the market, not just to, to the profit margin. And what I mean by that is let's say that the guy bought the house for uh, or the you know apartment structure or whatever. But let's use a house because it's easy to understand for $50,000 in uh, 1985. And let's say that house, if he sold it today, would sell for about $100,000. He's, he's taking good care of it. He's brought good tenants in, etc. He might be paying taxes on an assessed value of $65,000, $70,000, uh, especially in an older neighborhood with a lot, where a lot of these rental homes are. If you step in there and buy it and you pay him $110,000, your tax bill is going to be $110,000. But if you go rent from him... He's going to rent based on what the cost of keeping that house is and what the market will bear. That's pushing a lot of people into there that you know you, you normally wouldn't think would go into the rental process because their overall cost is significantly less. This is just one more thing to think about. The other thing that's doing this, I forecasted this, it's coming, it's coming slowly, it's not coming overnight, but it's coming. It's, the de it's part of the death of suburbia. And when I say the death of suburbia, a lot of people think I'm talking about the death of the cities. I'm not. I'm talking about the death of the suburbs. I'm talking about urban sprawl reaching out of this great big bullseye-looking thing of the suburbs, and then eventually you get far enough outside of that ring that you're into what you would call a, a semi-rural to rural environment. And what I'm talking about is the belt forming around there where all these high-density uh, housing areas are where people are going to become renters and move closer in or they're going to decide they want to move further out and there's going to be this belt of death around many of the major metropolises due to a variety of reasons. And this is part of it. If you're going to move into the city, okay, then you're more likely to become a renter at least short term. There's... Uh, There's less space available. It's just, a, it's just a better economic decision. So there's a lot of things at play here other than the housing market collapse. That is part of it. I'm not, I'm not, you know, mitigating that. But I also want you to think about something else here in America because I think it's easy to, uh, to, uh, misunderstand how critical things are. One of the statistics in here should paint a big picture for you. This is like a major thing and it's turned the whole economy on its head. But, It, it was 31.6% of people rented, and now it's 33.6%. It's only 2% change. This is what people don't understand about our economy. Do you know that our economy has pretty much continued to grow through the recession? It's just grown by like a point here, half a point. It, it's not even really declined very much, and it's been a catastrophe. We are in a system that requires growth at all costs, and these 1% and 2% changes have a dramatic effect on the overall situation. The other thing it affects is the stock market. I think this is one of the big things that most investors don't understand, especially the blind investor that does what your financial liar. Oh, did I say that? I'm an advisor. Tells you to do, just buy stocks and hold. Stocks are not priced in today's value. They're priced in tomorrow's value. 
So this is another place to look, and this is the big thing I want you to take away from the story, is how small percentages matter. Right now, everybody's freaking out about China. All the investment in China is pulling back. People are going in and shorting investments in China. They're going in and doing hedges against China. Why is China in decline? No, it was supposed to grow at like 10%. It's only growing at like 9 So it's actually growing at a, I mean, a 9% growth rate for a nation is massive. It's one of the greatest things of prosperity you've ever seen. But it's been priced at 10, 10 and a half, and that's only going to be nine. And those numbers aren't exact, but they're close. Understand that is created by this economy that we've invented out of thin air, by this fiat money system. There must be growth, and there cannot even be flat. There cannot even be tiny amounts of growth. There must be significant to moderate growth rate at all times, or we have major pain. Think about running a business that way where your business was profitable at $4 million in total revenue this year, but it has to go to at least $4.5 million next year. It doesn't matter if your taxes stay the same, your expenses stay the same, your employees stay the same, your customers stay the same, your margins stay the same. If everything stayed the same, if you don't grow from 4 to 4.5, you're going to be in danger of going out of business. Does that sound like a business you'd want to be in? We've built our entire nation that way. That's why these tiny percentages matter. And just a little bit of an alternate view on that one. Next one here comes from Anthony. Anthony asked me a tough question. Hi, Jack. I've got a quick, I've got a quick question. I'm an unemployed 20-year-old full-time college student. What, I, what can I do to increase my family's level of preparedness and redundancy for everyday disasters, especially when the rest of my family isn't exactly on board with a prepper attitude? I have no income, and any money I do manage to acquire through odd jobs and summer work goes to paying for my tuition and textbooks. I know you say college isn't really necessary, but I'm aiming to be a teacher, so you have to have a degree just to get your foot in the door. Uh, I understand that. I have a small garden, roughly 5 by 5 feet in the backyard of my parents' house where I still live. So far, I'm only growing peppermint, spearmint, dill, blackberries, and wild onion. We are roughly three acres of land in a small community in the country. What can I do with zero income? One thing you can do is scavenge and do more gardening. You can barter for seeds. I mean, you can do a lot with three acres of land. You can put in a ton of raised beds with scavenged wood. People say, well, if I use this cheap wood that I picked up that's laying over here, it'll eventually rot three or four years down the road. Yes, and then you go get some more free wood. I mean, see, I, I just don't see the problem there. Well, well, the, the you know the dirt will fall down. Well, you, you shovel some of it into a big pile. You build a new frame and you, you th throw some amendments in. Then and you're in college anyway, so three four years will take you a long time in your world. So as far as the gardening, you can do a lot more with that. But let me let me be real with you. If you have no income at all, uh, you, you're not going to do much of anything. So you need to rectify the income equation. And I understand that all your odd jobs and things like that are going to pay your tuition and for your books. And I hope what that means is you're not going deeply in debt. Because if you're going to come out the other side of this as a teacher, and understand it's a great it's a great profession to have, it's a great dream to have, and if it's what you want to do, I am 100% behind you going to college. But if you come out with sixty or $70,000 worth of student loan debt, the only way you're going to get out of that in any reasonable amount of time is go in the inner cities and go under the, the student loan uh, forgiveness program and teach in some absolute cesspool of a school where they need people like you, by the way. And if you're willing to do it, that might be one way to eliminate that debt. And I would look into that now, and I would start planning for it now. So that, that's that's a longer-term plan. Short-term, you've got to create some kind of an income stream. you got to go, I don't care if it's a small community. I bet you they have pizzas there. I don't care what you got to do. You got to find some. If you want to get anywhere toward a sustainable future for yourself, 
Young person, is this a guy? Yeah, Anthony. Young man, you need to go out and find yourself some sort of a job. I don't care if it's five to ten hours a week. If it's ten hours a week, at eight dollars an hour, that's eighty dollars a week. It's a start. It's probably not enough, but it is a start. And ten hours a week, you can make that work. You really can. So I'm going to tell you if you're going to get anywhere with preparing for not just disasters and prepping, preparing for your own future, you're going to need some income and you're going to need some freaking employment history. I don't care if you have to work at a mini market. I don't care what you got to do. I think you need to find a job, period. And if that means one less course per semester and one more year in school, but you come out with no debt and some money in your pocket, it's another year well spent. If that means that maybe you have to then... To compensate, you don't want to go that extra year and you take your Christmas vacation from school and you take one of those cram courses and you take your spring bake and you throw a cram course in there and you accelerate the time to the degree, then you do it. But you scrape the money, you avoid loans as much as possible, if not completely. If you're going to go into debt, plan on doing a debt forgiveness program for, for teachers by teaching in the inner cities. They'll give you some good schools. But understand this about your long-term profession. There's going to be a surplus of teachers in the next five to ten years. There are municipalities all over America right now that are getting ready to default and stop paying their bills. They're going to default first in the bond market. That's why people like Jim Rogers are not going to, are, are shorting U.S. bonds right now. Because the biggest source of municipal bonds is cities. That's what a municipal bond is. There are cities that are going to default. They're going to cut corners. They're going to cut costs. They're going to cut expenses. And what they're doing is they're laying off teachers. The city of Dallas is doing it. Cities all across America are doing it. All of those teachers are looking for a job. Most of them have no marketable skill other than being a teacher. So let me tell you, for you entrepreneurs out there that would like to attract a young man like this who's willing to work his ass off to get through school to be a teacher, this is an opportunity for the private school systems in America to take on a new facet. There is no reason, there is absolutely no reason that it should put a parent in the poorhouse to send a child to a high-quality education in America today in a private school system for secondary education, for primary secondary education. None. There's no reason. There's no reason that the only affordable option should be a religious institution with a religious school. So your small Catholic schools that are reasonably affordable, your small uh, Baptist schools and things like that, some parents don't want to send their kids to that. There's a market. There is a market to build a quality educational system in America that's affordable, that the blue-collar, hard-working guy who can make enough money to afford a reasonable amount of tuition can send his kids to and get them out of this failing public education system. And young men like this are who you want to attract. So I know I've kind of strayed from Anthony's question, but the answer to your question, Anthony, is you do everything you can with what you can gather, you can barter, and what you can use of the resources you have around you. And there's probably a ton that you can do with that. Find out if there's community gardens in your area. Can you go volunteer there? Can you know in return can you get some plants and things like that to bring home? Um, you know, talk to your local churches and things like that. Is there volunteer programs there? Uh, one of the great ways to find a job, by the way, folks, is volunteering. Uh, my wife got her first job in Pennsylvania after we moved there. She wanted something to do. She didn't really need to make, have a job. I was making a pretty decent income. She went down to the local Salvation Army said, "I'd like to volunteer." They said, "What?" They didn't even understand. They really didn't. They're like, well, we don't really have any kind of drive or something. Like, you know, they understand when volunteers come in, like when a big truckload of stuff comes in, or there's an event, like you know, what just happened in Joplin or something. But when she was like, there was nothing going on, and they she's like, I'd like to volunteer. And they said, well, what do you want to volunteer to do? She goes, whatever you need me to do. 
And they said, well, like today? She said, today, tomorrow, the next day, a few days a week. For how long? Well, for a while. I don't know. Depends on what you need me for. So they ended up basically bringing her in and showing her how to do the caseworker stuff. She did that for like three or four weeks for free. And then they offered her a salary to do the same thing. And uh, she came home. She said, I don't know what to do. I said, well, you going to keep doing it? She said, yes, I'm going to take the money. So there's a lot of creative things that can be done out there. The education market is a good place where people need to get creative. Young college students, I'm telling you the same thing I'm telling Anthony right now. You have to work. You have to get a freaking job. You cannot sit for four to five years in college without working a real job and expect that you're going to come out with an education degree, with a, with a freaking engineering. I don't care what your degree is in. You are not going to be competitive in the marketplace if you are not working. I don't care what the sacrifice is. You're young. You can do it. Okay, you flat out can. When I was in my early 20s, I was working two jobs. I was working about 90 hours a week. I was doing everything I could to get ahead, to make as many connections, and do as much as I can. If I can work 90, you can go to school 40 and work 20. It can be done. It's up to you. Uh, let's go ahead and take the next one. Next one is from Paul. Uh, Paul sent me this great article. It's on AccuWeather.com uh, on their blog. And it's called After Disaster, 12 Unexpected Things Victims Need. Uh, Paul says this was an interesting slant on how to help survivors after a disaster. This is when the good, honest people set up and prove their mettle. We see it often in America, but I'm sure that it happens around the world. It would be interesting to get feedback uh, from your international listeners. I agree. I think that for all the hype that we give about people... Um, you know, looting and rioting and stealing and pillaging and, and, and raping and everything else that goes on in some disasters. It is a very small segment of society. It's a very dangerous segment of society. The worst and the longer the duration of the disaster and the, the longer the duration of the absence of enforcement of normalcy, uh, the worse that becomes. And I want to be clear about something here before I read this article. Enforcement of normalcy during a disaster is not simply the responsibility of law enforcement and National Guardsmen. It is the responsibility of the citizens in their own community to say certain things will not be tolerated. And if that means that you have to be armed to make your point, then you do it. I just needed to say that. In many instances, it's not necessary, but we need to be prepared for whenever it is. Okay, so I'm not going to read the whole article to you. I'm just going to read the 12 things that they say people need and a little bit about each one. Number one, babysitting services. After a disaster comes the cleanup. Something that Don Lorenza uh, of the American Red Cross reminds us can be hazardous, especially for children and pets. Debris may contain sharp objects or glass, and flood water is often contaminated. Building structures may also be precarious. Offer to watch children or pets while victims investigate and clean. How many people have ever thought about that as part of your preparedness? If you live in a town, even like Joplin, where it was kind of cut in half, if you know someone that was on the, either of the opposite sides of town and your home was destroyed, theirs wasn't. So even in a huge disaster, like a six-mile-long, half-mile-wide tornado cutting through the middle of a major town, people just a few blocks away were relatively unscathed. Having that agreement in place in advance, if something happens, we'll look after each other's kiddos, great thing. Next one, cameras. Those affected by disaster hope to be covered by insurance. It will be essential for them to document the damage to their property. Chances are their camera was not the first thing they grabbed when they evacuated and rescued belongings. So disposable cameras are a good, helpful donation. That's interesting, too. It also makes me think that maybe one of the things that we need to keep um, inside our, uh, 
Our, our, you know, our basic disaster kit, the stuff that we keep like in a strong box or something like that, maybe slip in a little inexpensive camera in there. Maybe not a disposable one, just a little inexpensive digital camera into our strong boxes. And it all but like the, where the, some of the stuff here would be carried away, but if kept in a basement or something like that, maybe it would be there to take pictures after a disaster. That's one I never thought of. Here's one I always tell you you guys need to have in your bug out bags, your vehicle kits, always. Sunscreen and insect repellent, along with protective clothing like rubber gloves and rubber boots. Volunteer crews need sunscreen and bug spray. Cleanup work is often outside without the benefit of shade, and wet areas especially can become breeding grounds for mosquitoes, which of course transmit diseases, folks. Uh, number four, cleaning supplies. None of the volunteers can clean without cleaning supplies. There's never enough garbage bags, and bleach is also essential. In a pinch, there is a, if there's a water shortage, it can be used for treating drinking water. Are you starting to hear a lot of the stuff that we talk about all the time? Um, and different way, a different way of looking at it when we're helping out. Uh, laundry services. If clothes have been soiled or soaked by dirty water, they'll need to be cleaned before they, they start to mildew. This will be difficult if water and electricity have been disrupted. As often as happens in an emergency, if someone, uh, someone's washing machine was one of the casualties. Flood victims in Nashville didn't realize the value of laundry services until Tide brought a mobile laundry, in mobile laundromat trucks. They were a lifesaver and a clothes saver. I completely agree. I also think it's maybe a good idea for you to learn how to wash clothes without a washing machine. People do it all over the world every day. It's not hard. When I was in uh, Honduras, we would give our laundry to these uh, Panamanian women who would basically wash our, our laundry for us in the creek uh, using rocks. And uh, they really didn't even use any detergent. They didn't want to, to uh, destroy their, uh, their, their little creek that they relied on for so much uh, any more than we, we wanted to do that as well. So um, they came back. They were clean. They were a little stiff from drying in the, in the sun, but our clothes were clean and they smelled good. Uh, so it can be done. I think they used to rub some kind of... And I, this is one of those things you wish you would have paid attention to. They used to rub them with some sort of an herbal leaf of some kind before they put them in the water and after they took them out, and that gave them a reasonably nice smell. So uh, that's one of those things I wish I would have learned what that plant or, or group of plants actually were. Number six, new underwear. Do donated clothes come in by the garbage bag full. What's often not included in those bags are clean underwear and socks. Clothing isn't, that isn't recycled but is often lost in disasters. A clean pair of underwear can change a person's day. I would imagine so. Feminine products. As you just witnessed in whatever disaster you experienced, Mother Nature is the boss around here, and her monthly gift for women doesn't stop uh, coming in the event of emergencies. Buying tampons or maxi pads is the last thing a woman living in a shelter or salvaging a home needs to be thinking about. Uh, number eight, pet supplies. Many people saw during Hurricane Katrina, pets are affected by natural disasters as well. Pet owners need pet food, litter, medicines, and even free dog walking services. And I would say pet sitting services. Uh, what's your dog going to do while you're piling through the rubble that's you're left in your home if you're one of these people, unfortunately, that were victimized? So maybe making arrangements for not just the kiddos. And those of you that don't have any kids, maybe you know your friends that have pets or are pet lovers, maybe making that arrangement as well. Nine, space. If there isn't enough warning, people in the line of a storm might need space to store things out of harm's way. Uh, so space, so having a place you can stage some things. After a disaster, they may need an area which to dry things and to clean them off. Nonprofits also need spaces such as parking lots and empty warehouses to set up shelters, relief centers, and donation drop-off points. That's a good one to think about if you're part of uh, a town council or something that makes a disaster plan for your community. Assuming that everything was in kind of shape, something like Joplin was, where would we create staging areas? What And then redundancy. If that staging area is not available, what would be our next staging area? And keep moving out from the epicenter of, you know, 
wouldn't even really say the epicenter because you don't know where that's going to be. Keep moving out further out with your redundancy. You don't know how far out you're going to have to stage. If it was big enough that you're going to be bringing the National Guard in, the first thing that the Guard coordinator, uh, the commander on the ground is going to want to do is coordinate with your local uh, authorities and say, where can we stage? And they may come in and tell you where they're going to stage. But having a place prepared for them is a great idea, and it's going to be met with open arms. Communications help get the word out. People in the midst of aftermath or crisis uh, may have no way to find out what's going on. Volunteer for a crisis hotline that direct callers to uh, appropriate organizations or distribute flyers with relevant phone numbers. Address and email addresses. Red Cross's website is helpful clearinghouse for emergency information. It also offers tips on disaster preparedness. Check out your local government site as well. I would also say that this is a great reason to become a ham. Uh, a lot of times in these disasters, uh, ham radio people move in almost immediately, and they're the ones that first reestablish a communications network, uh, along with the television networks that do so with satellite communications. So I think that's a great reason to become a ham and have other secondary communications, uh, because you're not going to be making a lot of cell phone calls. If cell phone towers are destroyed, you're not going to be making uh, very many landline phone calls if the phone poles are yanked out of the ground. Uh, 11, transportation. Cars are often lost to natural disasters, and public transportation is sometimes disrupted. Consider offering a car carpool service between relief centers, shelters, churches, and grocery stores, and, and donate bus passes. 12, personal comforts. To give luxury items to someone who's just lost everything may seem frivolous. Who needs a gift certificate to a fancy restaurant when their entire kitchen has just been destroyed? I think that would be a great thing. Take an hour. There's no nothing. There's only so much you can do when you're in that situation. Take an hour, go somewhere, and let somebody else take care of you. Because the people in the middle of these disasters are generally trying to put their lives back together, but human nature takes over, and they're generally trying to put everybody's life back together, and, and it's a big burden. Let me go back to the article. The truth is a lot of people do. The emotional and psychological toll of a disaster is often just as serious, though less visible, as the material damage. Some small personal comforts can help return a sense of normalcy. Contact a service that offers counseling for disaster victims and see what personal comforts might be appreciated. Things like stuffed animals for children or massages for adults. And I think that's a big deal. And I, you know what that makes me think of? I'm going to tell you this story. Uh, I took my, my family to New York City when we went for the Fox News interview with Judge Napolitano. Uh, it was almost two years ago now. It seems amazing that it was that long ago. But uh, we went to this chapel. I can't remember what it's called, but it's also known as the chapel that stood. It's right near Ground Zero uh, when 9-11 happened. And uh, it was just surrounded with debris, but completely unscathed. It's one of the miracles of 9-11. It became a staging area. And one of the guys that was a rescue worker was there, and he was talking about how things were, were done in that chapel. And one of the things is that massage therapists came in and as rescue workers would take a break and come back and use one of the cots to, to sleep on, these guys were providing massages and, and, and there were other people just providing counseling uh, as services as well. And he said that it made a tremendous difference. It's not generally what we would think of as disaster response, but I could tell from this gentleman's story uh, that it was hugely valuable to those that received it, including himself. Um, let's move on to the next one. Uh, this one is a used money-saving tip. Remember, if you use one of the money-saving tips that we give you on the show, write us, let us know, and let us know how it worked out for you. This one comes from Candy. Candy says, Hey, Jack, thanks so much for the money-saving tips episode. I've turned everyone I know onto them. Even my friends who aren't preppers and are still asleep have visited the website 
website and even listen to the episode to learn what they could use. That's why we're doing them, not just to help you guys, but help spread the word. The more of us who are prepared, the better it is for everybody, especially when there's a disaster. And the house of the well-prepared person can be just as destroyed as the house of the non-prepared person. So having prepared people in the places that are unaffected is hugely effective at helping with all the stuff we just talked about. So let's go on to Candy's way she saved money. The first thing I did was make the homemade laundry soap. My 20-year-old usually does the laundry, and I didn't tell her what I did. After a day, she said, Mom, what is this new laundry soap? It's kind of lumpy, but I really like how it makes my clothes soft without softener, and it smells nice. It's great. Five gallons for a $1.25 and a little bit of my time. Laundry soap is a really big expense for us since the teenagers, including the 20-year-old, change clothes more often than Doris Day. Thanks again for all you do, Candy. Uh, yeah, I think that's one of the best ones we've had is the uh, laundry detergent. It's it's frustrating to go spend as much as it costs to buy laundry detergent and then realize it's like it's an expendable. You if you want to put it in perspective, look at what a gallon of laundry detergent costs versus a gallon of gasoline. Uh, that'll really put it in perspective for you. Next one comes from Ben. Ben has a very simple statement. He says, perhaps this is how our driving will be taxed. Remember, I've been saying that eventually the gas tax will be reduced, mitigated, go away, not really matter anymore because they're going to tax you by mileage. They're going to tax you whenever you drive. You're going to pay, you're going to have a credit card attached to some type of a device with your vehicle. And every time you drive down the road, it's going to be like a taxi cab. Beep, 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 every mile. Beep, beep. Where you're driving time of day, higher rates, lower rates, different lanes, they're going to turn the entire highway infrastructure, most of the state highway infrastructure, a lot of secondary road infrastructure into a revenue stream because of things like the electric cars, the hybrids, etc., and people cutting back on gas usage and things like that. Uh, people said I was nuts. Now all of a sudden everybody's talking about it and going, hey, look, it really is going to happen. Well, listen to this one. New federal rules to require black boxes to record driver activity in every car. I told my dad this one on the phone this weekend. He told me I was crazy. They always talk about this. They'll never do it. Okay, Dad, when they put the black box in your car, you can tell me I was right. All right, let me read this to you. Someday your car will give you recommendations on where to eat, suggest more efficient routes between home and work, and even monitor your health. Isn't that great? So we can adjust your insurance rates because uh, you're eating a Big Mac while you're driving down the road, which is probably not very safe in two ways, not just one. Anyway, but for now, it's just keeping tabs on your driving habits, recording your behavior in case it needs to be reconstructed after an accident. Federal officials are poised to announce next month that all cars must contain a black box, similar to the installed on airplanes, to give authorities a glimpse of your activities in the event of a car wreck. These devices can help pin down what happened the moments before a crash, helping authorities determine who is at fault for what and eliminating the uncertainty from human witnesses. Many bags with many cars with airbags and other systems already use electronic recording devices, but there's no clear federal rules because God knows we need federal rules on everything, right? About how the data can or should be used, as Wired's Autotopia blog points out. Some states allow automobile black box to be used in court, but others do not. So some states say you can, and some states say you can't. So what is the federal government saying? We need to come in and tell you how to run your states. That's what this is about, folks. Automakers have different proprietary data storage systems. So the market's deciding what's best. I <laughs> can't have that either. And there's no clearly defined method to retrieve it. General Motors can find out plenty of information about your driving house, as Autotopia explains, like whether you used your turn signal and whether you buckled your seatbelt. GM can use this information to build better safety systems. So there 
they're doing it for the private sector because they want to know how to build a better car. Not good enough for the government. But if conceivably can be used by insurance companies too when determining how to pay claims or to assign fault. Or it could be used by legal authorities to prove guilt or negligence. It's not a far leap to, to car black boxes that can figure out whether you were distracted by your cell phone, for instance, which could help attorneys prove liability in court cases. Combine that with iPhone tracking data and you could really have some privacy concerns. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration is expected to issue federal guidelines for how the data can and cannot be used. Oh, The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration will say how it can and can't be used. So they can come out and say, well, you can't do this and you can't do that, but since they really aren't elected or anything, they can just change that in the future and Congress can pass a law to get access to data. And let me just walk you through the logical progression of this. So we say everybody has to have a black box, and all the poor people say, we can't afford a black box with our piece of crap hoopty car. We don't have any money. Give us some money. And the government says, don't worry, the black boxes are free. Which means you and I, Joe and Jane taxpayer, we're going to pay for them because the government's going to fund them and they're going to give you a free black box. Even if you can afford one, they're going to give you one. They'll give anybody that asks for one of these little black boxes one for free. Yay! But we need to determine. We need to determine who's at fault for an accident. Let's think about this. If um, you're driving your car and you go through an intersection and I'm driving my car and I go through an intersection and we're both doing the speed limit And we crash into each other. And we don't want to rely on pesky stuff like eyewitness data and people that actually testify to what happened. And I say, my light was red and you say, or your light was red and you say, no, no, no. My light wasn't red. It was still yellow. I was proceeding through. Your light was red. You, and we argue over who ran the intersection. The black box data doesn't really help. Unless we have intelligent traffic systems now that have the, know when the lights are changing and have cameras everywhere. If we had a GPS card, Inside the black box that talked to the intelligent traffic service, we would know the split second that this occurred. We could put that in with the camera data that's available to us, and we could reconstruct any accident perfectly. And the guilty person would always be clearly guilty, and the innocent would be protected. What a great way to run a republic. There's the case they'll make to you. Now there's a GPS chip in your vehicle. Uh, maybe it's not even a GPS chip. Because those are expensive. How about just an RFID chip? Because the RFID chips will work with all the sensors all over the highway. And now, how the hell are we going to tax you? I mean, we've been trying to figure out how to make this uh, this road mileage tax things work to know exactly what you're laying in, what time you're driving, so that we can incentivize people to drive at off hours and we can provide a fast lane for people that are willing to pay more and slow lanes for people that want to pay less and give you the power of choice. Hmm. All we need are all the sensors that we're already putting out there. Local municipalities, if you want to charge a small local tax on this, federal government will protect consumers by setting a cap on it. Isn't that great? You just need to put the sensors and materials out there, and pretty soon we'll be able to tell where Joe, Jane, and everybody else, Jim, Bob, and Bubba goes at all times and charge them a bill. And we gave you the box for free, but guess what? If you're going to drive, not only are you going to have to have insurance, now you're going to have to have a method of payment to pay your taxes, a bank account or a credit card linked to your little box. And every day that you drive, we'll just send you an invoice by email. Isn't that great? Welcome to George Orwell, folks. That's what you're going to get. 
That's what's coming. And anybody that still thinks I'm crazy, anybody that still thinks I'm not giving you the future here, you're not paying attention or you're just in denial. And I don't know what we can do to change it other than to start to tear down the infrastructure that's being built. Because this infrastructure is mostly being built by cities and counties. And you need to start taking this issue up at the city and county and town council level and say that you're not comfortable with this and putting a cap on it. I don't know if that can change the federal plan to do the interstate highways. But I think that we can create some resistance here somewhere, uh, at least at the local area first. If you create enough stink at the local area, then maybe the feds have to rethink exactly how they're going to do these things. But if we let this progress, there's only one logical place that it goes. Complete and total tracking every time you get in a vehicle and being charged every time you get in a vehicle. And they'll say, it's only fair that you pay your fair share, Mr. Electric Car Owner. And since sooner or later, that's going to be everybody. That's the case that will be made. And think of all the great things we can do now. When somebody robs a bank, we can track their car. Right? They turn the tracking off, we look for the car that's not trackable. We know there's something wrong. You turn yours off, we're going to pull you over and ask you what the hell you're doing, even if your box just malfunctioned. Scary, but true. Uh, next one, uh, a little bit more pro or a little happier, I guess, in tone. Uh, this is from the survivalmom.com. Love her blog. I think she's got a cool blog. Love her graphic. If you haven't been to the Survival Moms blog, check it out. She's got a rifle over one shoulder, a purse over the other one. She's got her little t-shirt on, her little uh, jean jacket style shirt going. Looks pretty cool. I don't know how much it actually looks like the Survival Mom, but uh, I do like the graphic. But uh, this article comes from Greg Cecil, the guy that used to work for NASA that travels the country down in his big old RV and has the RV103 blog. Uh, and the article is called My Top 16 Tips for Beginning Homeschoolers. I'm just going to read uh, very quickly kind of the, the summary of the tips. Number one, just forget trying to duplicate a classroom environment. Schedule and curriculum in your home. There's nothing sacred about sitting at desks, having a set amount of time per subject, or using only textbooks. In fact, until my daughter was 11 years old, she didn't even know what a textbook was. Two, ignore the straw man arguing about homeschool kids not being socialized. I challenge the assumption that putting 20 to 30 kids all the same age in a room for nine months is the best method of teaching empathy, self-control, patience, generosity, and other desirable traits. Actually, it achieves almost the opposite. I agree with that one. Do you think your kids really learn about good social behavior by being locked into a room with one adult and 30 other children their own age where the strongest pick on the weakest? Does that really seem like the right way to run a school? I don't think so. I like the old school model. The old, and I'm not talking about old school. I'm talking about the prairie schools, like Little House on the Prairie Day stuff, where if you were in fourth grade, you were helping teach the second graders, and part of your grade was contingent upon how good a job you did teaching the second graders. You know, I think we could reduce class sizes, but we could have classes of multiple grades. And you think, ah, oh, it's just more abuse at all. Not if it's well run and ordered. Not if we're teaching these kids the right way from they come in. And not if we took the kids that do the things they're not supposed to do and made life very, very difficult for them and put a little bit of fear back into them. Might be a good thing. All the crap we have problems with in school today, folks, I went to school in the 80s. It's not that long ago. We didn't have that problem. We didn't have any of those problems. There was a reason. There were real men in our school system that were teachers and deans and vice principals. They controlled their school. They cared about their students. Sometimes as a student you felt like they really didn't, but you can look back now and see that they did. And we didn't have gangs. We didn't have metal detectors. 
We didn't have any of the crap that we have today. Number four, connect with other homeschooling families. Number five, once you get inside the homeschooling inner circle, you'll be amazed at the resources available to you. Here in the Phoenix area, we have access to special homeschooling classes at our Science Center. We get incredibly low rates with, to virtually every cultural event in town, including the ballet, opera, and museum. You'll find local homeschooling, email loops, forums, and more. Jump in and enjoy. Maybe that's why they win all the like science fairs, spelling bees, and stuff like that, get all these great scholarships, uh, because they're not just sitting in a classroom, right? Number six, try to attend a homeschool conference if possible. You'll have the chance to inspect a multitude of curriculum, listen to inspiring speakers, and network with others. Oh, my God, do you mean homeschool parents get to figure out the best way for their kids to individually learn? Maybe they learn basically the same stuff, like how to read, write, multiply, subtract, divide, just like they sort of do in the public schools, but they get to figure out what fits their kids best. Best sacrilegious, right? Number seven, don't assume that you'll always use the same curriculum or belong to the same homeschooling group. You'll be surprised at how your educational philosophy evolves and how one group actively turns out to not be the best for your family after all. Just roll with it. So don't get married to things and adjust based on the needs of your household and your students. God, sounds like a better way for kids to learn. Eight, use technology, but don't become dependent on it. Use computer-based curriculum this year, and when we experienced computer programs, my kids couldn't do any lessons until the problems were fixed. I couldn't believe how often we had issues with this during the year. We have tons of books on Kindle, but when we misplace the charger, forget it. Nine, if something, anything isn't working, give it one more try and then move on. There's no use in being stubborn, a stubborn idiot about it. I love the idea of my daughter taking gymnastics, but when it became a fight to get her to class, I gave up and we moved on to another activity. Oh my God, all parents listen to that. If you are putting your kids into an activity that they just hate, find another activity they'll enjoy. I don't have a problem with parents that say, you know what, kiddo? I don't care if it's basketball, I don't care if it's soccer, I don't care if it's chess club, I don't care if it's youth group at church, but you will have some activity. Maybe not all year long, maybe not all 12 months out of the year, but for some period of time every year you're going to have something. And I think with homeschooling to help get more out into to the social scene, it's even more imperative. But if your kid hates playing the piano, they don't need to know how to play a piano to live. I'm sorry. They do know how to know, multiply, subtract, add, divide, right? They know how to, how to do that. They need to know English. They need to know how to read. They, there's a lot of things they do need. They don't need to play the piano, the violin. They don't need to be a soccer player. They don't need to be any of those things. Make them find one they can actually enjoy. Number 11, this may go against your nature, but there's no need to do every subject every day. Keep in mind that public schools offer music once a week, maybe twice. Science is taught only two or three days a week, and the same goes for history, geography, social studies, foreign language, and more. You will kill yourself trying to fit six subjects in every day. And the kids only remember 10 to 20% of it anyway at best, especially when taught that way. I actually think it's better if we dig deep into something, really learn it, And use it. And remember, this is my advice, not the article from Survival Mom. There's no reason you can't be teaching children who love science how to read, how to write, how to conjugate, how to do all the important things that are part of English by using science. There's no reason you can't teach them that with a comic book and a book report on a comic book, for God's sakes. It's about the structure of the language. And if the subject matter is interesting, the application is relevant. In other words, I sucked at algebra until I started brewing beer. And when I had to compute spe specific gravity densities and alpha acid hops ratios, 
Uh, as an adult, I was able to teach myself things that I could never learn in school because there was a relevant application. I was always good in chemistry, even though my teachers would always tell me it's the same as the algebra that I'm doing over here. It didn't work for me because there wasn't an application I gave a shit about. So there's a lot that can be learned there. Um, next one. 12, you'll probably be surprised how few materials you'll need. I'll taught my daughter, oh man, it says I'm reading ahead. I taught my daughter to read using the book Teach Your Child to Read in 100 Easy Lessons. The lessons were ghastly boring, but she's an astonishing reader. Number 13, I can't overemphasize the importance of reading and math. They are the keys to everything else your kids will learn. Do everything in your power to develop strong readers and little mathematicians. Number 14, this is your, all capital letters in your school. If you want to spend an entire day playing math games and then going on a nature walk, do it. The flexibility and spontaneity are part of the adventure. 15, join HSLDA. It's a Christian-based organization, but if you are ever contacted by a school district, board of education, child protective services, or other agency questioning your homeschooling, you will be grateful you belong to this organization. It's worth a monthly fee of $7 or so. You can learn about your state's laws at the HSLDA. Website Sounds like a good tip. Number 16, the world is your classroom. Use it. Track down every resource available. Plan family vacations that will reinforce what your kids have been learning. And now the way that it all meshes back together. I said there is an opportunity for a private school system to be implemented in America today, taking advantage of young, aggressive teachers that actually care and want to do the job, that doesn't have to cost a family a fortune to send their kids to school. By following the example given by homeschoolers, you will help parents who cannot homeschool give them the same type of environment. If you think it has to be expensive, it does not. Ask these parents how much they do it for. And I believe that by partnering together, homeschoolers and a new private school uh, concept can work together to strengthen each other as long as they don't see each other as enemies, which they not should not. I believe the opportunity is there. I am aware of the fact that there are immense legal problems with doing it. But I believe that smart people solve problems instead of use them for excuses. So I am a huge proponent of homeschooling, but I also know it does not work for everybody. Uh, Greg has another uh, uh, article for me, and because they were both so interesting, I decided to include two today from Greg. Uh, this one is one I don't think a lot of people are probably aware of at all. It's on the Forbes, Forbes blog, and it's uh, the title of the post is, um, Is This the Year of the Atchafalaya, I can't read that, Atchafalaya River Captures the Mississippi. That's the best I can do with that river. I'm sure somebody will email me and tell me I'm saying it wrong, but Atchafalaya River. Um, if you want to be a better, if you want to better appreciate the historic significance of the 2011 Mississippi flood, perhaps the best place to start is with John McPhee's masterful 1987 article in the New Yorker called "Control of Nature: Atchafalaya." That's how you say it, isn't it? I think I remember it now. Atchafalaya. Uh, the most compelling part of McPhee's piece, which prints out at 55 pages and later became a book, is the section where he describes the flood of '73, the last time structures holding back the river were put to the test, and when They nearly failed. The river scouring away concrete foundations and weakening vital levees. McPhee's conclusion, it's only a matter of time until the Atchafalaya captures the main stem of the Mississippi and becomes a new outlet of the Great River into the Gulf of Mexico. Could it happen this year? The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is forcing the river down a path it no longer wants to travel. 
This is what happens when men fool with nature, folks. I didn't know this. This is That's why I put it on today's show. If I didn't know it, I figure a lot of you didn't know this. Had the river gotten the best of the engineers in 1973, the Mississippi would not be the same river today. It would, not, it would have forced a new path down the Atchafalaya Basin, and of course, that is some 20 feet lower than the river's current main stem, which offers a 150-mile shorter path to the Gulf of Mexico. Its course has changed dozens of times over the millennia. So no, Al Gore, global warming isn't making it change. This is how it works. Sweeping back and forth like a garden hose. And will change again. You can see a beautiful map of the river's countless meanders here, and there's a link. And a download, a full set of historical maps here, and there's another link. McPhee spent months trying to understand the centuries of engineering prowess that have gone into trying to control the Mississippi. Especially the creation of structures much uh, in the news today, like the Old River Control and Morganza Floodway, which was opened over the weekend to allow floodwaters to course down through the Atchafalaya Basin. The Corps has had a generation to strengthen its defenses since then, but there remains today more than a theoretical chance that 2011 could be the flood where the Mississippi finally decides to go the way it wants to go rather than stay in the bounds that man has chosen for it. Once freed, the sandbags, all the sandbags and bulldozers in the world would be insufficient to put it back where it is. The effect on the U.S. economy of a shift in the Mississippi River path would be significant. On the river between Baton Rouge and New Orleans sit dozens of industrial sites processing agricultural products, making chemicals, refining 13% of the nation's gasoline. Of these, Allencroft Spring Refinery in the Atchafalaya Basin is the greatest risk of inundation, while ExxonMobil has closed two pipelines to scale back production at its refinery, the biggest in the region. Upstream in Memphis, Exxon closed Riverside Terminal that has become part of the river. These plants need the fresh water flow from the river for cooling processing and to ship product out to the Gulf for the health of the U greater U.S. economy. We should all want the Mississippi to stay within its banks. Whether it does or not depends most prominently on the sturdiness of the old river control structure, which Jeff Masters of Weather Underground calls America's Achilles heel. We won't know if it's about to fail until it does. Okay, and you can read the rest of the article if you want to, but, okay, there's a couple things going on here. Number one, maybe the reason that we have so much problem with flooding is that we've had a shift uh, that we've avoided. And that maybe the, the river actually needs to go where it's decided it wants to go, and maybe it would be centuries, if not millennia, until it shifted back and we could build infrastructure around the new flow of the river. Because that sure seems like what's going on there. But number two, we're not going to do that. And here's another threat. This threat to our nation is unbelievable. Especially if instead of saying, look, we're going to plan for it, we're going to set it up, and then we're going to allow it to happen. That's, and I, I could be totally wrong about that. Okay, I want you to understand. I would not make a knee-jerk decision like this. I'm just saying, that may be something that needs to be on the table, which I think is absolutely in no way on our table. But instead of that, what this is telling me Is it sooner or later we can build levees, we can make sandbags, we can create dams, we can dig holes, we can move earth around. Sooner or later, the mighty Mississippi is going to go, <laughs> okay, <laughs> you've had a good run. I've played the game with you for a while. Oh, let me stretch, shift, and it's going to go down the Atchafalaya. And that's going to change the dynamics of New Orleans and everything from that point in the river down. 
And I don't mean everything down New Orleans is at the end. I mean, I'm obviously that's going to have a big effect. How much water will still go down there? How much water? I don't know any of these things yet. If you have more information about this, I want to dig into this one deeper. I want to understand this, but what I want you to understand is that the amount of shipping, the amount of material, the amount of industry that this would have affect, and. It's one of those things that from this report so far, and again, I can't vet this yet to say this is 100% accurate, but if we are to believe this, we'll know that it's in imminent danger of failure as it fails. So add that to your list of things that could happen that we need to be prepared for. A complete shift in the flow of the Mississippi River. And when you tell somebody that and they tell you you're crazy, tell them we've been preventing it for centuries. Uh, that that's where the river already wants to go. Quick question here from uh, Shirley. Shirley says, how will we know if silver and gold is real? Okay, so the crap has hit the fan and someone wants to purchase some of my homegrown veggies for me. They say they have gold or silver they will pay me with. How do I know it's real and what may be its worth? The only thing I know about gold is that one, it's pretty, two, it's expensive, three, my wedding ring is 14 carat, whatever that means. Shirley. Well, number one, you got to learn more about silver and gold. If you don't even know what 14 carat means, and I'm not even going to answer that one today because I'm going long, uh, you need to go to Google and put in carat system, K-A-R-O-T-S-Y-S-T-M, and you will find tons of information that explain to you exactly what 14 carat means in, in the world of gold. Um, but here's the first answer. Obviously, the safest stuff to take is going to be government-marked coin. So pre-64 silver, that's why it's such a good idea. You can get a dime for about three bucks and some change. Um, it's U.S. government currency. It's wear marks in it. It'd be almost impossible to counterfeit. Then moving on to things like silver eagles, gold buffaloes, and things. Anything with a U.S. government mark on it uh, that's a, a recognizable coin is going to be helpful. Uh, could somebody hollow one out and fill it up with like I mean, yeah, but come on, right? I mean, there's always... And then there's, you know, if you really want to get particular, there's people that can weigh it based on its volume and determine if it weighs the right amount. And if we ended up in a long-term uh, shit-at-the-fan scenario, barter scenario, where we get to a point where that becomes a de facto standard, we would again have people that that's their job. You would go in and they would look at it, weigh it, go against the volume and determine its purity. That's how gold miners cashed in their gold during the gold rush. You would go to a, 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 a merchant exchange and the guy would weigh your gold and based on its volume would know its purity. So if it's this big, it should weigh X if it was pure. And as we go down from that number, we can determine its purity. So there would be people that would specialize in that. I do think it's something we shouldn't overthink it or overworry about. If you look at it and it, it, you know, and you've looked at enough gold and silver, you can generally tell this is probably a legitimate piece of coin or piece of silver, and you take it in exchange. If it's something you would take in exchange, somebody else would probably take it in exchange. Counterfeiting has always been a problem, no matter what anybody has ever done as far as a currency. That won't go away. But you're going to have a hell of a lot less problem with counterfeiting with silver and gold than we do with paper today. Plain and simple, so don't overthink that one. Uh, next one, I wanted to read this one to you more for what it teaches us as a whole uh, than just to make fun of the, the idiot, and I'll call the guy that, the idiot that's been forecasting the end of the world. A lot of you guys have been talking about it on the forum and Facebook and blog over the past couple of years because he's been put this date out for a while. Uh, this is uh, Doomsday Prophet followers flabbergasted that the world didn't end. I know I'd read this article to you, and I want to talk to you about how it pertains to other mentalities in the survival world. 
It's hard to feel bad for someone whose doomsday predictions cause so much anxiety, but 89-year-old Harold Camping's recent admission that he's flabbergasted that the world didn't end last weekend sounds somewhat pitiful. It's been a really tough weekend, Camping said, Sunday after emerging from his Alameda, California home for the first time to talk to a reporter uh, from the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm looking for answers, but I, now I have nothing else to say, he said, adding that he would make a full statement today. Camping's PRA, Tom Evans, told the LA Times that the group is disappointed that 200 million true believers weren't lifted to heaven on Saturday while everyone else suffered and eventually died as a series of earthquakes and famine destroyed the earth. You can imagine we're pretty disappointed. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can't believe people buy into this crap, folks. But the word of God is still true, Evans said. I'm sure the word of God is true, but God didn't say this was going to happen, you morons. Oh, uh -huh. we obviously went too far, and that's something we need to learn from. The group posted 2,000 billboards around the country warning of the rapture. Hey, if you saw one of these billboards, let me know. If you took a picture of it, post it on, you know, to our Facebook fan page or something. I'd like to maybe get some discussion going on this. While camping and uncertified, uncertified, I think he's certifiable. Uh, fundamentalist minister spread the word on his radio show. Camping's family radio, which airs, uh, 66 U.S. stations carry this crap, has apparently rebranded itself quickly. Business Insider notes the station's website have scrubbed all mentions of Judgment Day. The site previously featured a countdown clock to May 21st, uh, rapture on its homepage. But the false prediction might not be so easily effective. Efficated? I don't know that word. From the lives of camping's followers. In other words, it can't be so easily erased. Uh, the LA Times writes that Keith Bauer, a 38-year-old tractor-trailer driver, took a road trip with his family to see the Grand Canyon before the world ended. This is where I'm going to get serious, folks. With maxed-out credit cards and a growing mountain of bills, he said the rapture would have been a relief. The paper writes. But Bauer is not angry at camping for his false prediction. Worst case scenario for me, I got to see the country, he told the paper. If I should be angry at anybody, it should be me. I believe you're right. If you followed this moron and it didn't happen for you and you maxed out your credit cards to go see the Grand Canyon, you should be angry at you, not this nut job that told you the world was going to end. Robert Fitzpatrick, who spent $140,000 of his life savings to advertise the rapture in New York, said he was dumbfounded when life went on as usual on Saturday. I do not understand why, he told Reuters, while awaiting the event in Times Square. I do not understand why nothing has happened. <sighs> Let me explain it to you, because nothing was going to happen, period. Let me. I, I'm not a religious man, okay, and I don't quote the Bible often. Uh, I'm a spiritual person. I believe in God, but I also say if you want to, if you want to talk about this, we can look to the source. I'm going to give you a quote right now. No man knows the hour or the time nor the day save the Father in heaven. I may not have it exactly right, but that's a good paraphrase. So if you are a deeply devout Christian and you believe in the rapture coming someday, I completely respect your belief. I absolutely, completely respect your belief. If you believe it literally, or you believe it in some type of a spiritual, figurative way, I have total respect for your beliefs. But, when somebody like this comes out, there's your answer to why it didn't happen when they said it would. All right? An NPR reporter talked to two of Campney's followers on Sunday. One man, his voice quavering, said he was still holding out hope that they were off by only one day. Another believer asserted that their prayers worked. God delayed judgment so that more people could be saved. Well, there's your disaster plan for the church, this guy's church. 
It worked. You should have had everybody praying that it wouldn't happen and saying that it did if you wanted to run a good scam. So there your listener gave you an answer. God delayed the judgment so more people could be saved. But the end is imminent, she reported. Evans, Campney's PRA, told NPR he hopes Family Radio will reimburse followers who spent their savings in anticipation of the rapture, but he can't guarantee that. It's not going to happen. You think you're going to give this guy his 140 grand? Like, this guy doesn't have 140 grand. If he does, he should give it to the guy. Protesters gathered outside Camping's radio headquarters to mock the false prophecy over the weekend. Some of them sent aloft a toy cow with balloons to lampoon the idea of a select elite would ascend to heaven. Meanwhile, other religious groups tried to recruit disappointed Camping followers. Hey, 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 the rapture didn't come. Come with us. We know when it's really going to come. Here's a video of Camping refusing to comment on his false prophecy. Um, you know what? Let me go ahead and play it for you, and we'll listen to it for the first time together. I haven't heard it either. No, no, no interviews. No interviews. Uh, 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 give me a day. No, no interviews at all today. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, you know, <laughs> this is a, a big deal. Big deal, and I've got to live with I've got to think it out, and so no interviews. Okay, I cut that about 10 seconds short for you because it just continued to uh, say the basic no interview, no interview, no interview, which is kind of boring. But uh, I like the – it's this is a big thing. Uh, uh, give me a day. I need to think it out. Give you a day. If you're only off by a day, you won't be here at the end of that day, man. You'll be up in up in uh, heaven watching all of us uh, deal with misery that didn't believe what you believed. I. I, the reason, though, I brought this on isn't just to mock this guy, and uh, you hear me laughing, and I'm not trying to be facetious, and I have a hard time mocking or laughing or at anybody's beliefs. I mean, I think what you believe is sacred to you, and, and if, if not agreed upon, uh, should be respected by me. But there's also people that are freaking nuts, and I think if you believe this way, you're freaking nuts. Uh, and, and, and this is the big reason I brought it on. I hear from people all the time, well, why should I worry about paying off my credit cards? If the shit hits the fan, it won't matter anyway. Same mentality. Same mentality. You're betting only on one eventuality. There's no redundancy in that. Oh, why should I worry about paying my debt off? They, they, they can just go choke on it. They're not getting their money. Oh, they're going to get their money. Unless it falls apart exactly the way that you're planning, and unless your plan works out exactly the way you're planning for it to work, they're going to get their money. They will hunt you down to the end of the freaking earth to get their money. Don't have only one plan, and don't only plan for failure. I'm going to say this again. It should be one of the quotes that, that you hear from me that you use with other people all the time. To, to plan only for failure is to, is foolish as to plan only for success. I'm telling you right now, all the people that you look at out there that are completely oblivious to threats, that have no plan what they're going to do if there's failure, and you think they're foolish, they are. But if your only plan is to be ready for failure, and you have no plan to be prepared for success, you're just as foolish as they are, you're just in that exact opposite. And the odds have shown in history that in a single human lifetime, it's more likely to work out for them than it is for you. We need to plan for both failure and success. That's part of living that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Let's take uh, maybe one or two more. I know I'm going long, but short week and, and, and also let's go ahead and knock out the other ones I had uh, planned for today. On another example of betting only on failure, but I think in this case we could actually learn 
uh, from this individual's limited success, I guess you would call it. Um, at least living the way that he wants to, we can learn from what he's doing. Uh, I'm going to only read a part of this to you. You can read the whole article if you want to. Enemy at the gate, not in this case. And it was sent to me by uh, Phil. Uh, and this is a guy down in Texas, Trinidad. On the other side of a barbed wire fence, John Joe Gray, a freestanding man and a fugitive from the law, is locked and loaded for the coming apocalypse or authorities, whichever shows up first. It's coming, he says. It's time that it's it's time this country knows God is coming. A rifle slung across his back and a gun belt around his waist holds a revolver and extra cartridges. A knife strapped to the other side of his lean torso, a battered felt hat frames a deeply lined face and bushy beard. This is one thing I want to know. The people that believe the religious apocalypse is coming and the rapture is coming and the world's going to end, what do you need a gun for? Isn't it over for you when it happens? I, 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 Again, I'm not disrespecting anybody's faith. I'm 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 marveling at the lunacy that some people um, attach to religion is a better way to put it than than, than get from religion. Um, let me read on with the rest of this article for you. Dangling from a nearby tree, a hangsman's noose strangles a weathered sign that sums up his stance. Solution to tyranny. Warily covering Gray's flanks are two of his six children, sons Jonathan, 39, and Timothy, 33. The dark-bearded, fit and tan brothers are well-armed as their 62-year-old father. Ten feet behind her brothers and father, long-haired Ruth Gray, 31, stands solemn and silent. She, too, is armed to the teeth. Next to her is teenager Jessica Gray, who is old enough, according to her father, Jonathan. She has on a cowboy hat, and the wind keeps blowing... The wind, that the wind keeps blowing off. A long denim skirt, a sequin denim vest, and cowboy boots. She's packing a pistol and binoculars. Here's the interesting part. The law is ignoring him. This is one stubborn, this is one stubborn side of what has been called America's longest run, running standoff with law enforcement. But it's been a single-sided siege. Henderson County authorities have pointedly ignored the would-be war. For more than 11 years, John Joe Gray and his country clan have been holed up inside their own private prison, a 47-acre strip of Trinity River bottomland about 100 miles southeast of Fort Worth in Henderson County. They've scraped out a harsh life here ever since Gray was bailed out of jail in 2000 after he was charged with assaulting a state trooper on Christmas Eve of 1999. During a traffic stop, Gray and the driver of the car told two Department of Public Safety troopers that they were armed. When ordered to get out, the driver did, but Gray wouldn't budge. One trooper pushed Gray out, and he then lunged for the officer's sidearm. Gray bit the trooper as they struggled for control of the weapon, according to the investigators. An Anderson County ground jury indicted him on two felony counts, assaulting a public service and taking a peace officer's weapon. We're here because the two highway patrolmen lied about what happened, Gray said last week. Land of the free, home of the brave. That's a bunch of bull. He has refused to be taken alive. In a long-ago letter to authorities, the family warned officials bring extra body bags if they come for him. Authorities kept tabs on the compound for months but haven't maintained an active presence for years. We fear no man, John Joe Gray maintains. We believe in an eye for an eye and a bullet for a bullet. But nobody's storming the gate. Henderson, Carey, uh, Henderson County Sheriff Ray Nutt, what a name. I would change my name if my last name was Nutt. Uh, who is the fourth lawman in a post since 2000, like his predecessors, that he's not willing to risk a gun battle just to arrest Gray. 
John Joe Gray is not worth it. Ten of him not going up. The, ten of him is not going up there and getting one of my uh, young deputies killed. He said, living off the land. The hard scrabble compound has no phone, no refrigeration, no power. Contact with the outside world is through a handful of supporters via shortwave radio. John Joe Gray said, drinking water comes from springs. And Gray and his sons say they subsist by growing beans, potatoes, corn, squash, tomatoes, and peppers on fields they plow with donkeys. They can get they can they can vegetables and dry meat to get through the year. They said. So I'm gonna let you read the rest of the article if you want to. Um, like I said, I think we could probably actually if this guy wasn't a flipping nut, uh, I think we'd actually look at his compound and we could learn a lot. Um, but is there any anybody else that picked up on the dates there? Uh, he was pulled over by the highway patrolman in December 1999 and was put in jail and then released in January 2000. Anybody want to bet? Anybody want to bet with me that Y2K had something to do with what was going on all the way back then with this guy? And Y2K came and went. The rapture didn't come for this other nut job we talked about today. This is what I'm talking about when I say... As modern survivalists, we have to plan for both sides of the equation. This this whole concept that no one's going to have any control over me is in denial of our form of government. Our government is a republic. And that means that, yes, the government's too big. Yes, the government's run away. Yes, the government is trampling on the Constitution. But there are certain constitutional roles for local, state, and federal government. And to live in a republic, you live within the community's boundaries and rules. And this guy's trying to live outside of them. If he was living this way... But he was not a fugitive from the law. I wouldn't even care. I wouldn't even care. Um, assaulting a police officer and attempting to take his sidearm uh, is a crime. And it should be. And, you know, I think what the authorities have decided is, this guy put himself in prison. We'll just keep an eye on him. As long as he stays there, he can do whatever he wants. He can be in prison for the rest of his life that way. And he feels like he's living free. I guess that might be the best way to handle this. I sure wouldn't want to see this turn into a Waco. And I wouldn't want to see the extremists on either side get a hold of that event. So this is probably the best way to handle it. Uh, my concern now that this has made mainstream news, will the feds decide they need to step in and do something? If they do, mark my words, it will be a disaster. It will be a disaster for everybody involved. So what's the solution to a problem like this? I think the local sheriffs make the choice. And they've made the choice, and now they get to manage it. They get to live with the consequences of it. This is a county matter. It should stay a county matter. That doesn't mean a sheriff in a different county would handle it the same way, but it means as long as we have a sheriff in an elected position, which may not always be the case, there's some real dangers with the election of sheriffs. I'll talk to you about the next show I do like this. But for now, I just thought this was an interesting one I needed to bring to your attention. Uh, and now, even though that we've gone uh, long, i got one more for you today. Okay, I wanted to end sh today's show on a little bit of an up note. Everybody knows that I'm big into gardening, and there's a lot of reasons why. Uh, this is an article from Off Grid News, and I want to share a little bit of with you. It's called Five Reasons Everyone and Everyone is in All Capital Letters Should Have a Garden. Number one, self-sufficiency. This is the real reason many people have a garden, and it's certainly a good one. With fuel prices rising and crop problems around the world, being able to produce food in your own backyard is one of the best ways to supplement your food supply. Not only will you be more self-sufficient in one area, but the resources that are freed up from buying food can be redirected to other areas. Stress relief. 
Did you know that dirt can make you happy? Dr. Christopher Laurie published a research linking contact with microorganisms in the dirt to improvements in your mood. And gardening is even recognized as therapy for depression. You've heard that on the show here, folks. Awareness. We live in a world that is growing a million miles a minute, going a million miles a minute with every constantly on in the background and with everything constantly on in the background and electric lights telling our bodies it's daytime all the time. It can be hard to even keep track of the days of the week. When you commit to being a gardener, you commit to being aware of what's around you in the real world. I completely agree. I'm abbreviating these, by the way. You can read the full article by going to our show notes today. Connection. Gardening is rarely an effort that happens in isolation. Even the smallest child will love to pick up a spade and dig and carrying the watering can for you. Suddenly you might find you have a new common goal with your spouse. And, of course, once you harvest the abundance of produce, you will be able to share with all of your friends and neighbors to show, to show your love and build goodwill. Help. Creating and nurturing your own garden will not only improve your mental health, it can improve your physical health as well. You will now be able to know exactly what it is that you're putting in your body without all the added chemicals and genetic modifications. I completely agree. It's a great article, and I'll tell you, I've been saying, I've said it before, I'll say it again. If every American would put in a couple four-foot by eight-foot garden beds and grow just a little bit of their own food, we would probably put the psychotropic drug manufacturers and the psychiatrists and psychologists in this country pretty much out of business. There are people that are flipping nuts. Uh, most of them, though, are running a nutjob church telling you the world's going to end on May 21st or something like that, not on a psychologist's couch anyway. Um, grow a garden. I mean, that's if, if, if people ask me what is the one thing I can really do to start myself down the path to independence, liberty, and self-sufficiency, start with the thing you're going to need every day, your food supply. Grow a garden. It's a gateway. It's a gateway drug into prepping. And in this case, it's a gateway drug. It's a good drug. With that, I am going to wrap up today. I know we went a little bit long, but again, it's a short week. And uh, there's a lot of great stuff that I needed to share with you guys and try to get caught up on some of this stuff. So with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
revolution is you.